Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, February 13th, 2022. Happy Super Bowl. Hope, you're, hope you had a good Super Bowl party, if that's what you did. Southern California, LA is pretty happy today. So go LA. I mean, go Rams, but really, we're rooting for LA. <laughs> yes. And today, we are going to be talking about just four shows, not five, because Meet the Press was preempted not by the Super Bowl. No, it was not on that early, of course, but by the Olympics, which are still going on. So we had four shows. I took a look at Face the Nation, hosted by Margaret Brennan, as usual. And I took a look at This Week, hosted by George Stephanopoulos. What did you look at, Naomi? I looked at... Fox News Sunday, which was hosted by Sandra Smith, a Fox News anchor. She hosts um, kind of like an economics business show on Fox News. And then I also looked at State of the Union, which was hosted by Jake Tapper today. Well, Brendan, let's dive right in. Quality or questionable, what are you talking about today? Well, for that particular segment, I wanted to highlight a quality moment, Face the Nation, as usual, proved to be among the best shows that I covered today of the two. <laughs> not, a, not a lot of competition, but very clearly one of the best shows where Margaret Brennan and the team surfaced a variety of insights, particularly about Ukraine, which we know is uh, very much on the brink, potentially, of armed conflict. Lots of words out there saying that the actual invasion might be slated for Wednesday, this Wednesday. And I wanted to just surface one particular moment when Margaret Brennan had her first interview, which was with a CBS News military correspondent, David Martin, the national security correspondent, I should say. And this is just incredibly high stakes. President Biden has said he would not send in combat troops to Ukraine. But if you look at that map, we have NATO forces very close to Russian forces. There's a high degree of miscalculation risk. The stakes in this are, are really uh, incredibly high. I mean, you have uh, the sovereignty of a country, Ukraine. You have the uh, solidity of, a, of an alliance, NATO. But above everything else, you have the threat of a war between two U.S. nuclear and two nuclear superpowers, the U.S. and Russia. And that has to be avoided at all costs. And frankly, I think that is why Putin has been so methodical in this buildup and, in fact, maybe even telegraphing some of his punches so that the Americans have plenty of time to get out of the way. Because, you know, once the shooting starts, Unintended consequences set in, political pressures build, and nobody can guarantee where this is going to end. So I thought this was really interesting, this point that there's a reason why Putin has been so methodical and slow in building up these troops. One of those reasons, of course, could be that it's just a big bluff and he wants to eke out as much news as he possibly can before stepping back to Russia and not doing the invasion. But the other possibility, the very real possibility, is that he's doing this carefully because he knows he does not want to incite a much bigger war or conflict between himself, the United States, and NATO, which would be catastrophic for everybody involved. So definitely worth thinking about. And also why later in the episode, when we heard from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, it was underscored again and again that the Biden administration will not rescue Americans from Ukraine. Yeah, I heard that loud and clear in the shows I looked at as well. American troops are not going to go in to potentially find themselves at cross purposes with Russian forces. That will not happen. 
So get out if you want to get out. And also just well done having David Martin kind of have this conversation. I think it's valuable to hear from a journalist who follows this beat. And it doesn't always have to be somebody from the White House. Because some people are just not going to be as receptive to messages and warnings or context from the White House itself. Right. I mean, this is so important, right? And Face the Nation, this followed a very comprehensive introductory piece that Face the Nation did, kind of bringing the audience up to speed on where everything is. And then on top of that, we had this like analysis discussion, this interview with another CBS correspondent, like you said, who's steeped in this and can kind of cut through all the BS and all the all the complicated facts and everyone's personal agendas and say, look, this is how I see what is happening here. And that is really helpful. And then we got to the White House. So it was many layers of facts and context before we got to, or, you know, an interview that included someone with an agenda. And the White House always has an agenda. Absolutely. Naomi, did you have a quality or questionable today? Well, speaking of having an agenda, I wanted to talk about the interview that I saw in State of the Union with Larry Hogan. He's the Republican governor for the state of Maryland. He's kind of been an interesting Republican in the era of Trump and post-Trump. He was never kind of a true Trumper. He disagreed with a lot of the direction of the Republican Party since Trump has come into power. And has trying to kind of help the GOP find its way back to the middle or back to some generic messaging around fiscal conservatism. And he was the former head of the National Governors Association. So we saw a lot of him on the Sunday shows over the last few years. That's definitely true. And apparently there was a focus or an attempt by the RNC, specifically by McConnell, to get him to run for set the Senate in Maryland. And That's right. He declined. So, which is very interesting because the last I heard of him on the Sunday shows, it sounded like he was going to do it. Oh, interesting. I always thought he's running for president in 2024. And like other governors, finds the Senate an unappealing place post governor. But the point of this interview, I thought was just interesting or the angle was interesting. Often when we see one journalist, often Jake Tapper, ask one Republican, is this appropriate for the Republican Party? Is this the future of the Republican Party? Are you okay with like, he asked these like very subjective. How do you feel? How do you feel questions about someone's party? And it often feels like a very much waste of time. (laughs) Yeah, that's how it feels. (laughs) Right. (laughs) At least for us. But the today's interview with Larry Hogan felt different, and I, I can't quite put my finger on why, but it felt much it felt much more actionable and from a perspective from someone who is actively trying to improve the situation, right? Not someone who's taking kind of a very passive role. And there's a couple clips of this that I'm, I think kind of reflect that, and I'd be curious as to your thoughts, Brendan. Let's see him. The first clip is... When Jake Tapper asks again Governor Hogan kind of what he thinks the Senate is doing or Republicans are doing in Washington, D.C. Do you agree with New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, another Republican who also rejected a Senate run, uh, that Washington Republicans, in his view, are too focused on being a, quote, roadblock to Biden and not focused enough on actually getting things done? I, I think they're, you know, sometimes focused on uh, the wrong things, not just uh, being a roadblock to Biden. Bl- roadblock to Biden. I mean, there are certain things that we want to stand up to President Biden. He, the, the, the inflation is out of control, and we're talking about billions and more spend, uh, trillions and more spending. You know, we want to make sure that uh, we, we do stand up and, uh, and speak out. But uh, I'm, I'm concerned that they're focusing too much on looking at the past and, uh, you know, trying to relitigate the last election and arguing about things instead of having a positive, hopeful vision for America. And let's take a look at the second clip from this interview in which Jake Tapper asks Hogan to reflect on something he said before and if they've made significant enough progress. Let's take a look at something you told me on this show ex- uh, almost exactly a year ago. I think the, the final chapter of Donald Trump and where the Republican Party goes hasn't been written yet. And I think we're going to have a real battle for the soul of the Republican Party over the next couple of years. 
So as, as you know, there's a new CNN poll out this morning showing that about a half Republican voters want Trump to be the nominee in 2024, but that means a half don't. Um, but also, CNN polling shows three-quarters of Republican voters don't think election results reflect the will of the people. Republican candidates up and down the, the ballot are actively uh, lying about the election in 2020. And the Republican Party just declared, uh, the RNC, in a, in a censure declaration against Kinzinger and Cheney, who I imagine are two House Republicans you respect and admire, yep. they just declared January 6th, quote, legitimate political discourse. So the battle for the soul of the Republican Party, are you losing it? Well, I think we've still got a long way to go. Uh, like I said, we have until 2024. Uh, w- right now, I think we've made tremendous progress because we went from about 80 some percent that wanted to reelect Donald Trump to 50. That's a huge drop. But you're, yes, I've been speaking out loudly and strongly about this battle for the soul of the party. Uh, you know, to, to say it's legitimate political discourse to attack the seat of our capital and smash windows and attack police officers and threaten to hang the vice president and threaten to overthrow the election. It's insanity. And, you know, it's a, there's a circular firing squad where we attack Republicans. You know, the Republican Party that I want to get back to is the one that believes in freedom and truth and not one that attacks people who don't. Uh, swear 100% fealty to the dear leader. Wow, that's pretty strong language. I mean, that's the type of language we've heard from people like Adam Kinzinger. Exactly. And to be kind of so specific, I think, in both his expectations for a functional party and his hope for a party that can win elections, that's so very different from what the RNC is doing, feels not like a very vague, tepid, like, we, you know, we were strong before, we'll be strong again. Or, you know, sometimes there's some really generic notes of support for the RNC or kind of what they're hoping to accomplish. And that's not what we see from Hogan. And given the fact that Hogan is someone who is seen as a potential 2024 viable candidate who has the respect of a lot of other Republicans in the party, like that level of clear specificity about what he thinks the party needs to do feels feels more valuable in some way. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how that story develops, particularly if he truly does decide to run, which makes me think he will since he's on these shows. Yeah. And there were several questions about, will you be running? And he said, "Uh, I'm a governor until January 23, and then I'll figure that out. So yeah, he's running. But let's dive into today's show, Brendan. We're doing something a little bit special. We have a combined segment specifically about the political panels. Can you share a little bit about why we thought we should do it this way? Yeah, well, you know, at the start of every episode of Polylog, we have our little introductory words that we speak. And it's always in the back of my head that we don't talk a lot about the panels, and yet we say we talk about the usefulness of roundtable discussions, which I said a little differently today, thinking about this. That was your hint that that's what the topic would be today. Anyone got it? I didn't notice. (laughs) (laughs) But today, the panel really stood out to me as the most noteworthy thing, the thing that I've never seen before in quite this way on this week. And yet it felt representative of everything that was wrong with panels. Not everything, but much of what is wrong with panels. So I thought that it would be worth taking a deep dive into one particular line of discussion that led the panel on this week. And just going bit by bit, beat by beat through the discussion and trying to understand what is the purpose of these exchanges, what, what is going on in these arguments that are being hurled back and forth from these political pundits, and what ultimately are we getting from it? Is, is the conversation even really that valid and useful, or is it just an excuse, the topic an excuse for the same type of partisan back and forth that we've become loath to hear? What about you, Naomi? What made you want to focus on panels today? Yeah, so I wanted to look at panels because I felt like there were or there are a couple different camps around political panels, maybe even three. There are the shows that have been doing it all throughout the pandemic, like this week, and they haven't changed (laughs) um, in their structure or stubbornly refuse to change or develop. Yeah, I would also include Fox News Sunday as a show that also hasn't changed. 
we have shows like Face the Nation, which has, you know, cut essentially panels as soon as COVID hit. Sometimes they'll have like a subject matter expert experts, but for the most part, the panels are gone and they're yep. doing they're using that time differently. And then we have shows like State of the Union, which are bringing panels back. And Meet the Press, too. And remember. Meet the Press, too. Yeah, that's fair, too. And and so there's not a lot of change on the Sunday shows. There's not a lot of kind of innovation sometimes that happens on the Sunday shows. And so I thought it might be interesting to look at, like, are, what are they doing with the panels as they come back? Are they taking this time to kind of reimagine its purpose and what it does? Or are they just going back to as if it's, you know, 2018, 2019, pre-COVID and just having... The Bash Fest. I don't know. Not Actually, with, not with Dana Bash, <laughs> right? But it it felt like a good time to examine how shows are just reexamining political panels more broadly. Very good, very good. Well, why don't we start with the specific and then go to the broad? So, Brendan, to do that, let's start with this week then. Yeah, so this week, like I said, we're going to go beat by beat through this and just get a sense of like, what is this conversation about? Again, is it valid? So let's begin by talking about who the participants are on this panel of this week today. So here's George Stephanopoulos introducing them. Governors across the country dropping mask mandates this week ahead of the Biden administration. We're going to talk about that on our roundtable. Joined by Chris Christie, Donna Brazil. Sarah Isger, a veteran of the Trump Justice Department, now an analyst for ABC News, and Patrick Gaspard, president and CEO of the Center for American Progress. You notice how Christie and Brazil had, like, no introduction? It was just their name? Even though they're clearly political pundits for their respective parties. Yeah. But somebody tuning in who maybe hasn't heard of their name has no context for who these people are or what they stand for. But anyway, there's your sense. Basically, first of all, Here's one thing that it didn't get wrong. It is a balanced panel, right? We've got two kind of Republican right-leaning voices, and we have two left-leaning voices. So that is at least balanced. That's that's a good thing, I guess, right? And then we have this sense, okay, so that's who's on it. What is the topic of discussion? Well, there you heard George introduce it, and you heard the words that he used to do so. George said, Governors across the country dropping mask mandates this week ahead of the Biden administration. That's what he said. The topic was going to be of discussion. And so he went into his first question to Donna Brazil, not to Chris Christie, I should note. By the way, Chris Christie should not be on these panels. He's expressed extreme interest in running for president. So should not be a voice on these panels anymore, as we've said ad nauseum. Here's the question to Donna. Well, Donna, let me begin with you. We saw those Democratic governors a lot of de- go out uh, this week ahead of President Biden. Are we in a decisive new phase of this pandemic? So this is interesting, right? Because what is George doing here? He is twice underscoring the fact that governors are dropping the mask mandates ahead of the Biden administration. Twice he says that. There is a division here. There is a difference. First, he just says governors. When he gets to the real question, he talks about Democratic governors now. And he says, look, they don't seem to be on the same page with President Biden. But the question is not at all about that. The question is, are we in a decisive new phase of this pandemic? Which is an easy question for Donna Brazil to answer. And she does. Here's what she says. I think the governors are doing it right. So Donna Brazil states her position. The governors are doing it right. But Chris Christie is right on her heels. And now we're going to see what this real conversation is going to end up being about. The science that drove what happened this week was political science. Oh, okay. Interesting. What does he mean by that? Christie brings in this argument about a Democratic governor of New Jersey, a political opponent of Chris Christie. To back up the claim that the choice of these governors, Chris Christie brings in an argument about a Democratic governor of New Jersey. Remember, Christie was a Republican governor of New Jersey. And so Christie is using this argument about the Democratic governor of New Jersey, this example, to back up his claim that the choice these governors were making was based on political considerations, not science or epidemiology. Oh my gosh, can you believe it, Naomi? Politicians running political focus groups? A scandal. I would never believe that politicians do focus groups to decide what action, course of actions take. Never. 
George Stephanopoulos actually jumps in here himself to rebut this this statement that oh it's all based on politics. But circumstances now, have changed. Well, but, yeah. but George, they haven't changed that significantly on the ground yet, um, in many places. And and what drove this was politics. So there's Christie sticking to his guns there, saying no, this is all about politics. And again. Christie is using this example from New Jersey to paint all of the governors out there and all of the national situation, right? And George, interestingly, even though just a moment ago he pushed back on Chris Christie, kind of reinforces Christie's point by reminding everyone that President Biden is staying cautious. So you'll notice that wasn't actually a question by George Stephanopoulos. This is a trend in this conversation. George does not actually ask a lot of questions. He just kind of interjects here. But think about how saying President Biden is staying cautious reinforces Christie's claim that things haven't really changed that significantly on the ground, that the science doesn't back up the need to reduce these mandates. Now we're going to hear from Patrick Gaspar, president and CEO of the Center for American Progress. He's going to remind Christie that actually things have changed on the ground. And he actually backs that up with numbers, unlike George Stephanopoulos, who introduced it with just saying things had changed. But it's profoundly cynical to say that Phil Murphy made this decision because of politics. They've seen a 70 percent reduction uh, in COVID rates over the last six weeks, 70 percent reduction in, in, new, in new infections. Right. That's why they're making this decision. They followed the data very, very closely. Uh, and if they're, they're marrying the data to economic uh, consequences and consequences so in education as George. well. So finally, with some facts that actually back up George's earlier rebuttal that circumstances have changed. And remember, it wasn't just George's rebuttal. It was actually kind of George's thesis to this whole conversation. Now we have facts. And Chris Christie, in response drops the argument that things haven't changed on the ground faced with these facts, but he reiterates that the Democratic New Jersey governor lifted the mask mandate after he did focus groups. So they go back and forth on this, you know, Gaspard's talking about the facts, Christie trying to reiterate that this is all political, and then Christie introduces a new fact about what Governor Murphy said on national shows this week. That's the phrase he uses, on national shows. According to Christie, Murphy, the Democratic governor of New Jersey, was asked... What's the scientific reason for delaying it a month? He had no answer. You go back and look at the tape. Go back and look at the tape and you'll see. He had no answer. That should be clear, right? Again, we have been going back and forth, this seems absurd, on the actions of a single governor... A single one. And the only expert on this governor's actions is a former governor from the other party. That's what we're treating as the as the expert on this governor's actions. This whole angle is so dumb. I mean, beyond the fact that Chris Christie is not a journalist, he is a pundit. He is a political rival of Governor Murphy. Like, at no point... Can any viewer take what he's saying at face value as fact, like plain and simple? That's not what we can trust in a political panel. Right. So at no point is Chris, is George Stephanopoulos chiming in saying like, actually, this is what we know. And this is what is speculated. Or this is whatever journalistic findings have been confirmed about the decision-making process in New Jersey, which as a national news show, they probably don't have. So they probably shouldn't talk about it. Right. But then, like, you could talk about what the CDC is recommending, what governors are recommending, and the tension between that. Is CDC frustrated? Why do Democratic governors feel comfortable to go against CDC messaging? That's quite interesting. Right. As opposed to, you know... Murphy did it, and he did it because he did polls, and right. that's what and he has to. Right, focus groups. It's, it's, it's an like accusatory. The yeah. Right. It's, it becomes from a very accusatory place, as opposed to like, well, why are they doing it? Is it true it's just because they did polls? I, that seems such a boring-ass story. Like, really? That's what the angle we're going to, like... Uh, it's just... There's an interesting conversation here, and they're choosing to have a lame one. Yeah, exactly. So then... George Stephanopoulos invites 
the other conservative into the conversation because we haven't had enough conservative back and forth on this topic, but he wants to get another voice in there. So he invites Sarah Iskarin, not with a question, but by some cryptic prodding. There's always going to be some degree of uncertainty with the science. I think that's true. Again, that's not a question. He's just adding something to the to the stew here. And Sarah Isker grabs it and makes this observation. If it really were based on science, then they would put out the numbers. Once we get hospitalizations below this rate, then the mask mandates will lift. You haven't seen a single governor give out the metrics that they will use in advance of them them using it. And the truth is that the only science that has changed, in my view, is actually around mask mandates in schools. That's actually very fair and interesting criticism. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, she says if it were really based on science, they'd put out the numbers of kind of like their benchmark, right? Once this gets here, then we're going to make such and such decision. Now, Naomi, you and I have been talking since the early days of the pandemic about how frustrating it is that these governors and other political leaders are not being clear about their benchmarks and how they're making their decisions and what data that, you know is driving it and giving the public a sense of like, where are we and when are things going to change? And even when they have been clear about that, as I know, for example, Newsom was at some point, on a whim, he'll change it, right? Right. He'll change he's, it. He's hasn't done that for the latest changes. Yeah. And Newsom, of course, is the Democratic governor of California. That's right. Our governor right now. So I think this is a very important point by Sarah Isker. And yet, look at how she phrases it. Again, she begins by saying, if it really were based on science, then they would put out the numbers. That's that's how she phrases it. It's like, well, actually, it could both be based on science and also not be very well planned or organized, right? Like, you could still be triggered by someone saying, hey, look, the numbers have gone down. Oh, okay, so we'll lift the mask mandate. Like, it could, again, could still be based on science, but that doesn't mean the process was well thought out and well articulated. So I think they're having this conversation where it's like, oh, is it politics or science that's causing these decision making? And she's saying, well, it's clearly must be politics. So, you know, this isn't based on science. But that's not true. And you could say there's low trust in the CDC. Right. And frustration with their slow decision making process or slow updating of protocols that democratic governors don't feel compelled to listen to every cdc recommendation anymore given the political blowback and then explore what some of those frustrations have been at the state level with those cdc recommendations or their botched messaging yeah on the other side you can talk about how constituents don't understand the decision-making process by their local governors and also why it might be vastly different from a neighboring state or different from their, you know, county or local officials. Like the patchwork of mandates is very confusing and might lead governors to think that like, hey, there's people are confused and mad anyway. Like even if it's not my fault, I might as well get maybe some credit. I don't know. I'm just like guessing right now, but Again, you could have an interesting conversation about this. What they are doing is not that. Yeah. So let's bring in some of the Democratic voices here because they also have their own political agendas that they're that they're pushing or sides that they're defending. So skipping ahead a little bit, Sarah Isker goes on to issues of recent public polling on this topic, calling the results nuanced, but then summarizing it as... Most Americans are fine with some mask mandates, but they also now are starting to understand the trade-offs of that. They're frustrated about the school learning loss, and they think that everyone's had the opportunity to get vaccinated. So Isker's take is that most Americans are getting pretty frustrated with the mask mandates, but the progressive voice pushes back on that polling. It's also changed about a dozen times in the last 10 months or so. So that's convenient. (laughs) He doesn't deny the polling, but says it can't be trusted because it keeps changing. Isger simply says things could change. Of course they could change. But right now, and then Gaspard defends Biden's choice not to lift any mandates based on the right now realities because... 
Joe Biden can't just focus on the now. He has to make certain that we are prepared for any variances that may come in the near future. Then why didn't on they send out the tests health last science. year? Why didn't they send out masks last year? Why doesn't every American but, but have a stack of N95s? They did, they did. So this is very interesting, right? <laughs> because Gaspar, at the beginning of our conversation here with Christie, was the one saying that the numbers have changed and they're driving Phil Murphy to change the mask mandate and then skip ahead here to the conversation with Isger. Again, this is the same conversation minutes later. And he's saying, as the president, Joe Biden can't just focus on the now, right? So which way is it? Should, should leaders focus on the changes, on the differences that are going on in this pandemic? Or should they not focus on what's happening now and worry about the future? It depends on who you're arguing with and what the argument is at the time. And then Isger brings up this mask thing, which I don't really fully understand, although I do agree it's worth asking, why didn't the uh, the administration send out more masks last year? Slash, why didn't the previous administration beef up manufacturing of masks and tests? Why didn't this ma- administration beef up manufacturing of masks? Like, there's so many layers of incompetence around masking and testing with both parties. Yeah. So it all comes full circle when Chris Christie jumps back in, as he always does, to reiterate the main point he's been trying to make, that these decisions are all political by dropping this information here. I don't think we can be, I don't think we can be naive about the fact that there are 36 governor's races coming up in, in the next seven or eight months. The politics of this are always been an element of it, not maybe in May or June of 2020, but certainly since that time, politics have been an element of it, and we have to be aware of that. Yeah. So that kind of concludes this whole discussion. And when you th- look back on it, it's lacking, as, you, as you've brought up, Naomi, in so many different ways. I mean, even if we remove the fact that Christie should not be the main source of information on a political rival, that that is awful, and that this is a very personal thing for him, being the former governor from the other party, even if you remove that, The idea of framing this all through the lens of one of those 36 people is really stupid. You know, like it's it's not evident that this is what's driving all of these governors to make these decisions at all. And ultimately, the question that George Stephanopoulos asked at the very beginning, are we in a decisive new phase of this pandemic, was not really directly addressed, right? Absolutely. Some governors are lifting mandates. Okay, that's happened how many times during this pandemic? Does that mean it's a new phase? Probably not. If you really want to talk about a new phase of the pandemic, probably you should be talking to an epidemiologist about the difference between a pandemic and an endemic. (laughs) I know. I love, love, love how the shows are constantly talking about this is an endemic now, and they've never had a public health professional or an epidemiologist truly explain the difference. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's such a joke. Exactly. And think about how also this entire conversation, like George introduces it as there's a discrepancy between governors and the Biden administration, right? Governors lifting mandates, the administration isn't. But yet the whole conversation is focused on the governors as if they're doing something wrong or they're doing something right or whatever. What about the Biden administration? Is it right for them not to lift the mandate? We don't really look at it through that lens. And we don't really look at it through the lens of, is the CDC making the right choice here? You know, on Face the Nation, there was a much more nuanced discussion of this topic. And Scott Gottlieb mentioned that the CDC is likely to introduce some new metrics and benchmarks for local governors and states to say, look, if the numbers are low enough in our area, then yes, you can lift the mandates. It's unconscionable that the CDC hasn't done that yet, considering the numbers are already going down. But the CDC always likes to be late on things. That seems to be in their motto. So we're waiting on that. But they're not beyond criticism. And yet this whole conversation has been about one governor. So I'm, I, I hope that this didn't feel like a huge waste of time to our audience. But I did want to point out how this was a huge waste of time for the audience of this week today. And that these panels, in the middle of it, when I was listening to this, and this is, again, just one of like the two or three topics that they talked about, it just felt like 
pundits being pundits. They were making all these moves, you know, throwing out facts, distorting claims, defending their side at all costs. Every tactic in the pundit book was being deployed. And ultimately, the feeling I got from it was, I can't trust any of you people because you're all just, you always have a clever quip, even like no matter what the fact is that the other side has. Yeah, we're all just recipients of the pundit economy, essentially here. There isn't a true use case that's for our own best interest. Yeah, and it's it ends up being very disappointing because it doesn't feel like an honest interrogation of what could be an interesting question, the difference between what governors are doing and what the Biden administration is doing on this issue. But so many angles are missed. There's so many missed opportunities. And instead, we just get this endless back and forth. Naomi, were your panels any more useful? Overall, I would say no, (laughs) but I am disappointed in different ways. On Fox News Sunday, as I mentioned before, they've kind of been doing panels. They've never stopped around COVID. And I think I would say on Fox News Sunday, they are usually trying to kind of give context to the political cost for a certain issue or a certain story. Usually with the conservative bent, what's the impact on the economy, on ta- on taxes, on, you know, can they get this done or how are voters going to feel? It's, but I think, you know, they're doing kind of that same angle regardless of whoever's in the White House. So take a listen to this question by Sandra Smith. Again, the kind of substitute host talking to Joanna Mosca. She is a former Obama White House official, and now she is CEO of the Global Situation Room. In this clip, you'll hear them talking about specifically inflation and why the White House might still be pushing different parts of the Build Back Better program proposal. Joanna, a quick thought from you on inflation. You've got this these massive price hikes, but yet this White House is still pushing its spending bill, trying to do so at least across the finish line. Look, I agree with Jerry that one president is not responsible for inflation, and we are still feeling the effects from closing the global economy in March 2020. I think President Biden is doing everything he can to address it. And just going back really quickly on the point of uh, President Biden being responsible for Putin's aggression, President Trump actually undermined our intelligence agencies to Putin. So I think a lot of blame is there. I think we as Americans need to come together and focus on our next 100-year strategy for American dominance. Okay. Jason, real quick thought from you. We've got to leave it there. Yeah, this is why Americans are still so sour on the economy. The wages are up, that's true, but those wages are being gobbled up by inflation. This is going to be a political problem for Democrats as we head into the midterm elections. And then that second clip, that's Jason Riley of The Wall Street Journal, and he has a new book out called The Black Boom. Felt like a lot of finger pointing on my first hearing of this. Yeah, exactly. And it it's more about, you know, Americans are hurting. Who Who's going to be blamed for this? Yes. Right? And, and that was kind of the full purpose of that conversation. And, and interestingly, this is the same strategy that we sort of heard from George Stephanopoulos, which is, I'm not going to actually ask you a question. I'm just going to say thoughts on this. Yeah, making noteworthy observations is not the same as noteworthy questions, not for a journalist. But to be honest, that frustrates me a lot less than what I saw on State of the Union, because State of the Union stopped doing panels for a really long time. And you would think they'd be re-examining. They have a new ho- a new co-host. It's also a time for kind of some fresh structure. They dropped State of the Cartoonian, and now Jake Tapper has his kind of end rant of the week. And they could have been re-examining if and how political panels could be worth it. But they didn't. They're back, and they are literally as lazy as ever, just with a bunch of hot takes with snarky borderline mean, but just information that's completely irrelevant to their viewer, other than to just inflame them and get them all like hot and heavy on something they could be mad about. So take a listen to this back and forth between Farrah Griffin, Bakari Sellers, Scott Jennings, 
various Democratic and Republican pundits. Farrah Griffin specifically was in the Trump administration, but talking about Ukraine and whether or not Biden is getting it right. But the, the, the fact is, and this is something that's very important, we saw this in the Obama administration. We did not see this in the Trump administration, but Vladimir Putin is scared to death about being isolated again. He's scared of the economic sanctions that Barack Obama put on him. He's scared of the fact that we can literally crush and cripple his economy and he'll be isolated and alone. And that, that looks as if what's about to happen. But 2014, uh, he annexed Crimea during the Obama administration. I would say this. And what, Joe, what happened after that? Well, that's true. Crippling well, sanctions he, 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 he are in our election. I mean, the reality is whenever Joe Biden's in the White House, Russia runs wild. The politics of this are so that, fraught. That, but that's not accurate, though, it, because after Crimea. I'm, I'm sorry, what's not accurate? He annexed Crimea, he meddled in our election, and Biden was in charge, and so was Obama. Now Biden's in charge. Now he's back on the border. The politics of this are so fraught. Yeah. Because... The, the, the air of competency was let out of the balloon over Afghanistan. Look at the Pentagon report about our evacuation from Afghanistan. The air of competency is gone. So I don't think the American people, A, have an appetite for more engagement overseas, and B, they don't trust this administration think, could do it. I think oh that the richness— They I think meddled that the, in our election. You're letting <laughs> that lead go right by you, no, uh, uh, Car. I know. That's I'm not— That's acknowledged, <laughs> but, but, but Every time but, I'm here, yeah. it's but, a true story. But, 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 let's, but let's be honest about the richness of this conversation, because now we're talking about someone taking a stand— to Vladimir Putin when the last four years, Hillary, but, but I would, that was the antithesis right. of what happened. But, after Crimea, after Crimea, Russia was literally simply a gas station with a nuclear weapon. The, the, the sanctions yeah. that were placed on Vladimir Putin crippled that country economically. But That's Joe, what Barack Obama Joe did. Joe Biden ran on restoring our alliances. NATO's going to lead again. And now he's taking a complete backseat in all of this. I mean, the Brits are stepping up with this kind of like trilateral agreement with the, with the Polish. Where is American leadership in NATO right now? So this is kind of a long exchange, but I just wanted to give you a sense of the tone of the conversation, right? It's it's snipey. It is very snipey. It's trying to get the last word in, trying to be the smartest and the meanest. It does. It seems very personal, doesn't it? Absolutely. And what would have been helpful is like a real timeline of what happened in 2014 and whether or not NATO like agreed with what the sanctions that the U.S. put in <laughs> to Russia after the Crimea annexation. But like we don't see that. They're just like bragging or, you know, kind of dunking on the Obama administration. Again, these are n none of these people are journalists. So you don't know what to trust at all other than, oh, that was a smart comeback. Now I'm all like happy. Like, really? That's a waste of my Sunday morning. I just hate that this is what, like, passes for political analysis, right? Exactly. One million percent. Like, if you think this is political analysis for, like, the average American and then, like, subject matter experts get all the white papers and there's nothing in between, then, like, we need to have a broader, <laughs> like, come to Jesus moment about public education in this country. Like, for goodness sake. It's just so frustrating that so much of what we think of as political commentary and analysis is so nakedly partisan. Just that is what it is. It is partisan. It is for the team that you're for. And I just hate it. It's just so frustrating because there's so much more intelligent discussion. And so then that intelligent discussion only seems to exist with journalists. Exactly. And yet journalists, I think they're getting some of them are getting better at being able to step in and, and provide that political analysis role and, and that hat. But we see problems there as well, where they're, they feel constrained by the rules of objectivity to not kind of like call a lie a lie, right? I mean, how many times did we run into that with the Trump administration? But if, you know, the shows aren't ready to have that conversation, this could be a conversation with subject matter experts that are not journalists. Right, exactly. It does. I mean, journalists are often doing this conversation well, but it, the shows themselves are not structuring it so other people could have that kind of conversation as, you know, alongside them. And I just want to say, like, for, like, these professional political pundits, like you said, they seem actually more interested in winning their personal argument mm -hmm. with this person mm -hmm. than in bringing the audience along to, like, help explain what the hell they're talking about. They're trying to get booked for their next show. They're not trying to teach me anything. No, the audience isn't here at all. No. 
just to get you appropriately fired up before we close out the show, I just wanted to show one more clip from State of the Union that is even more snarky and more useless. I do want to ask you, because you worked in the Trump West Wing, uh, what do you know about Trump ripping up documents or even, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you didn't go into the bathroom with him, but, but uh, flushing stuff <laughs> down. So I did witness him ripping papers. I think it was kind of just he does that. Um, and I know staff secretary then had to piece back together papers to archive them. The bigger issue here among the many grievances I have with Trump, I don't know that the not archiving is a huge issue, but the classified information mishandling is huge. Um, I was I criticized Hillary Clinton for doing the same thing when she mishandled classified information in the State Department. So the idea that he himself also may have done exactly what we hit her for for five years is just remarkable. And it just it's that level of hypocrisy that drives me crazy. I, I, I think it's worth pointing out, actually, that Hillary Clinton did didn't not mishandle actually mishandle classified, classified information. information. That's what all of the investigations <laughs> showed. She had a personal email account where she talked about her daughter's wedding. So <laughs> there was know, classified there was information classified. on on, but, on the on the but, email. But there was not a mishandling. It was not a disruption of property, et cetera. There was no trend. There was no result of an investigation that showed that was a problem. But where we have now is literally the government had to raid Mar-a-Lago to get the truth out of Donald Trump. And, you know, no surprise. No surprise. But, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, in fairness to the president, former president, there was a national toilet paper shortage in 2020. This is so freaking stupid. Like, if you want to have a conversation about the importance of archiving files and mm-hmm. memos from the White House, you can have that conversation. You want to have a conversation about Trump completely ignoring or breaking those violations and what the potential consequences might be and who is doing what? You can have that conversation. If you want to have a conversation on the hypocrisy of the Trump administration doing that when they went after Hillary Clinton and her emails for so long, like you can even have that conversation in a way that is truly showing what supposedly Trump did to the issues of Hillary Clinton's private email server. But you're leaving it to political pundits to just like be snarky with each other and not again to teach us anything. And it's just and jokey, right? Like like you would think that this is just all a big joke and it's like Oh, you know what? Uh, you're not supposed to uh, eat the test in your class, and if you do, that's kind of funny. Or you lose your homework. Ha ha! Oh, he left it at Mar-a-Lago, and they had to go and get it. It's like actually, those are national secrets. Like the identities of spies could be actually compromised. Like people could die if national secrets are released. Like this, a lot of these are, can be life and death situations. There is a reason that these things are there. And then when it comes to like archiving. general ethics. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. But like, there's no indication that this matters, right? Like it's very, it's very interesting to me that the conversation about Hillary Clinton's emails was about like the dire consequences of her complete negligence over these critically important national security documents and yet the conversation of trump because he was maybe eating the papers and tearing them up and accidentally leaving them at mar-a-lago oh it's all a big joke it's like what so one of them is a dire national security threat and the other let's just laugh about it yeah i mean i think there's even like a more meta problematic component to this in that maggie haberman kind of sat on this story, put it on her book, released an excerpt of her book, and then all the news shows are just eating it up and then having conversations like this trash conversation. And it's like, is this like our journalistic process now? Like scoops and ethical dilemmas are saved for books and then we eat them up like, like this is the equivalent of like a political Us Magazine tabloid story in the way that they are framing it and the way they are talking about it. Not in that, like, not that nothing serious happened. Something serious potentially happened. But the way it's held, the way it's released, and the way we respond to it does not give it the weight, the potential weight that we probably should. Well, don't get me talking about books because on this week, which 
as I noted, I did not think was a good episode, they decided to close with an interview promoting a man who went to prison for Richard Nixon, who has a new book out. Oy vey. So, obviously, you know, we we talked about Brendan trying to find a positive angle to talk about today. We really did try. That was my quality. I started with a quality. Yeah, I had a quality too. Yep. So, this is us trying to be productive in our observations and... The way it came up is the panels are killing our soul a little bit. If you have any thoughts about political panels, if you enjoy them, I'd love to hear why or what they offer you. And if you hate them and hate them in a different way, please tell us. That would also be very helpful. I just I, I, I just want to say related to State of the Union, it's very sad to see the panels come back to the show because they only have an hour for their truly honest Sunday morning political show. And to waste that hour the way they waste so many hours during the weekday with just a bunch of talking head pundits sniping at each other is a real, is a really sad way to waste time and to degrade the quality of your Sunday show, which is competing with other Sunday shows that are doing it right, like Face the Nation. Absolutely. Well, that's it for Polylog today. This week and every week, we encourage you to make your dialogue count. And I would encourage us to think about maybe like group conversations more broadly. Like when are they helpful for you? When are they not? And it could be about politics or it could just be about your job or, you know, conversations you're having at your church or community center, wherever it might be. Like when, when are group conversations helpful for you and what is the structure of them that makes them so? Exactly. Structure is so important. Like group conversations are not easy to have good ones and to find good ones, I feel like. Yeah, we should cherish them and understand why they're good when they are. If you have thoughts on productive group conversations that you are observing or a part of, we would also love to hear about those. You can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can find me on Twitter at SotoNaomi underscore. You can find me at Beastidle and you can find the show at Polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye.